you'll join me in Esther chapter 9, Esther chapter 9, we will read from verse 20 to the end of the book. The title of our sermon this morning is A New Day. Our key words for our worshipers in training are Purim, Mordecai, and People. Do you ever struggle to remember things? There's a story about a couple in their 90s. They had gone to the doctor, and they identified with the doctor that they were both having a difficult time remembering things. So he encouraged them to start writing everything down. That evening when they were at home, the husband was going into the kitchen, and his wife said, can you please get me some ice cream? And he said, sure. So she asked him, shouldn't you write that down? He assured her he would remember. Well, I want strawberries too. You should write that down. No, it's fine. I will remember ice cream with strawberries. Yes, but I also want whipped cream. You should write that down. I've got it. Strawberries on your ice cream with whipped cream. No problem. He went into the kitchen. He banged around for about 20 minutes. He finally came back into the living room, and he handed his wife a plate of scrambled eggs and bacon. She stared at the plate for a few seconds, looked at him with disdain, and said, I told you to write it down. Where is my toast? (laughs) Our minds, our memories are important. And all throughout the Bible, the Lord calls us to remember. And sometimes that's a difficult thing to do. But more importantly, the Bible calls us to remember what He has done, to remember what He is doing, to remember how faithful He continues to show Himself to be. Why does God call us to remember? Well, mainly because we're so prone to forget. It's one of the main reasons we celebrate holidays and birthdays and anniversaries. It's the main idea behind many of the biblical festivals and feasts that we see among the Jews. Those are all remembrances. Every culture has its form of remembrance. And as we conclude this morning our journey through this book of Esther, we come to a concluding section about remembering what transpired throughout the history of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire and how their lives were spared by the hasty and wise actions of Mordecai and Esther. They were spared from suffering the fate of Haman's evil plot to have them all destroyed. The Jews really focus on Mordecai, and the book gives us a sort of concluding summary of all that transpired and how this festival of Purim came about, a festival that continues to be celebrated by the Jewish people today. So we're finishing Esther this morning. We're going to begin in verse 20 of chapter 9 and work our way through the end of chapter 10, and we'll have a look at the text first, and then we will look at some implications for application at the end. Now, we ended in verse 19 last week after the Jews were victorious, destroying over 75,000 of their enemies in just two days within the empire. Haman's ten sons were killed, and then the next day they were hanged, and they put an end to Haman's family entirely. And we saw at the end of that text that the Jews gathered, they rested, they feasted, and they partied. And in verse 19, we read, 
that all of the Jews, far and wide, hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day in which they send gifts and food to one another. So let's pick up from there. We read together beginning in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So Mordecai sends out letters to report on the battle to all of the kingdom to let everyone know, not only in their own province, but also in all of the others, that the Jews were victorious in the battle. And winning victory against their enemies was not enough. Now the Jews must celebrate. And notice, it says that not only were the Jews given the opportunity to celebrate, but they were obliged to celebrate the festival. This was the beginning of a new holiday for the Jewish people. And we'll see further on down in the text that this holiday is called Purim, which is still celebrated today. Now I want you to notice something about the holiday. If we just take a straight reading of the text and observe what it says about what the holiday is for, there's no real indication that the Jews are celebrating this in order to give thanks to God for the victory that they have just obtained. This isn't like what we saw with the Jews and the, uh, after the Egyptians uh, chased after them and their chariots were all buried in the Red Sea and Moses led the people in songs of praise to God. So also this isn't quite like the, the victories at, at Jericho and I when Joshua led the people into covenant renewal at Mount Ebal. This differs from when the Lord delivered his people under Deborah and she led them in thanksgiving. This differs in content from many of the psalms, that, the psalms that are in acknowledgement of, of, of thanksgiving for what God has done in His deliverance of His people. In some of these cases, thanksgiving became a lasting ordinance to remember what God has done throughout the ages. But the most a striking example of all the remembrances is that of Passover, the annual feast in which God's people are commanded to remind themselves, to remind their children, to remind all the generations of God's protection of the final plague, God's deliverance of all of them from Egypt. But what's most striking about Purim, when placed against the backdrop of all of these Old Testament festivals, is that it is a horizontal celebration as opposed to vertical. In all reality, it has nothing to do with God. Notice, it was established as an ordinance by edict from Esther and Mordecai. It's not commanded by God. This, this explanation of what is going on continues in verse 23. And, and from here we get this short summary of what transpired leading up to this point, which is likely the very thing that Mordecai wrote in his letter to give more context to everyone 
And we get more details as well about the holiday itself. Look at verse 23. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in the matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep those two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim shall never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." As I already mentioned, Purim is still celebrated today because of this mandate. And there's every reason to believe that Jesus himself celebrated Purim. You can see why in verse 28 that this this is for all of the Jews, for all of their descendants, and all who are their allies who want to celebrate with them. Today, many Jews call Purim the, the Jewish Halloween. They dress up in costumes, and in doing so, they cover their faces because they want to portray that in the story of Esther, God is not mentioned. He is veiled. He is hidden behind a mask and yet is always very present. And the celebration goes on for two days, as is mandated by the edict. And let me say, it is quite the event. One rabbi wrote in an ancient Talmud about Purim celebration, telling them what to do. And he said, let your drinking be to the extent that you cannot tell the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. In fact, many Jews today are very concerned that the whole celebration has become an excuse for rampant drunkenness. The general idea is as long as everyone can make it to synagogue on both mornings, they are free to let the celebration go on however they please. And during that time together, at some point, the entire book of Esther is read, and every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, everyone cheers and claps, and every time Haman's name is mentioned, everyone boos and hisses and spits on the ground. I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to at least observe Purim at a synagogue sometime. Look at verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of of Abihel and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. We see Esther here confirming the feast. She's using her authority as the queen to do so. This wasn't optional. The Jews would celebrate Purim, and it would happen in every province. 
Notice the letters were written in words of peace and truth, or some translations say peace and faithfulness. Even though God's not mentioned, it, it's, it's very obvious that He continues to be in the story up until the very end. So verses 20 through 32 of chapter 9 are simply an explanation, a, a rationale for the Jewish holiday, this Jewish festival of Purim. And we see what it was, we see why they did it, we see how it was instituted, and it seems like the story should end there. It it seems like this is one of the major points of the book of Esther, to explain all that happened and to give a rationale for why this festival exists as a Jewish tradition. But chapter 10 comes, and it's just three verses But it has to end on a different note because the fact of the matter is that the book isn't just about a feast. We see Mordecai being reintroduced in chapter 10, and he turns out to be the great hero of the people. But first, there's a very strange verse, verse 1 of chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Now, This has nothing to do with what came before. This has nothing to do with what comes after. It's simply one verse that mentions the king imposing taxes. Now, there are a lot of different opinions as to why this verse is included. Some believe it's simply a note about the king's prosperity despite allowing Mordecai and Esther to eliminate Haman's edict. You remember, that came at a great financial cost to the king. Others believe it's an underlying comment about Mordecai's effectiveness as a leader of the people. My favorite interpretation, though, just because I hate paying taxes so much, many believe it's a reminder that despite their good fortune, Ahasuerus was still a burden to the people. He continued with business as usual. Who knows what the purpose for including that verse really is. What we do know, what we get from this, if nothing else, is a glimpse into the reality that life continued on in the kingdom, and the Jews continued to live life in the kingdom as its citizens. Verse 2, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Now, isn't it interesting? The book of Esther is the book of Esther. But for the Jews, it seems quite obvious who the real hero of the story is, right? To them, it's Mordecai. And chapter 10 is not about Esther. Chapter 10 is all about Mordecai. Now, there's something admirable about Mordecai, and we can acknowledge that he was a great man and he did great things for the Jews. Compare him to someone like Haman. Haman had to toot his own horn. Haman had to tell everyone how great and powerful he was and remind them that he was the king's right-hand man and he had all of this power. He was very full of himself, whereas Mordecai was not. He was a humble man. He didn't brag. After he was paraded through the streets of Persia, remember, what did he do? He went right back to his work and never said a word about it. So yes, he's great, and we never hear him say anything about himself. He's not just a politician or administrator, but his greatest accomplishment is being a Jew who is able to gain the king's favor by simply doing his job. And that's a really important thing for us to see. 
But now having read the text and having a better idea of what's going on here, as we wrap up the book of Esther today, I want to lay out three major implications for us to hopefully walk away with. Now, I'm going to make this a little hard for you because the first implication has six points to it, but I will help you along the way, I promise, so you can track. I know it's confusing. I'm sorry. But here's the first implication from our text. God's people have a place and a purpose in this world. God's people have a place and a purpose in this world. One thing we see with Mordecai and throughout all of Esther, and I honestly, I I know I've been hard on both of them for several things they did and didn't do, but at the end, at the end of all of this, we see a great thing here, and no matter what position he was in, Mordecai remembers to work on behalf of his people, and Esther does the very same thing. So, six thoughts on that implication. The first is this. God's people can work effectively in the world. You know, for some Christians, there's often this sense that the only useful thing we do, the only thing that really matters in this world is what we do in our gospel labors, but that's just not true. We see all throughout the Bible that doing hard work and doing it well is a good and a right thing, and all work is legitimate work and should be done unto the Lord and not unto man. We need to keep ourselves from the kind of thinking that says only the work that we do in the church can be acknowledged as noble and useful. Only work in the church is to be admired. Only work in the church is what matters to God. No, your work matters. Your work matters profoundly, and it matters because God has provided it to you that you might provide for yourself and for your family, that you might contribute to human flourishing in some way, that you might be a blessing to others, that you might gain resources necessary to continue to provide for the work of the kingdom of God. Mordecai and Esther show us that God's people can be effective workers in whatever they're called to do in this world. And most of us, I I guess most of you, I should include myself in that, will not experience a life of doing your labors specifically for the church. And that is okay. Your work still matters profoundly. And it is a gift from God, and you should embrace it and do it as such. Secondly, being in a position of power or influence does not necessarily force people to forsake their roots. Now, it is possible to be in a place of power and not forget the people you come from or that you come to represent. It is not wrong to work for the benefit of your own people. It is not wrong to be committed to the people you are a part of, especially if you've been called and appointed to serve them. If you're in a position of influence on a board of directors or in a position as a congressperson in the form of government, a representative or a senator, it's not wrong that you have the people you are called to represent in mind when you are making decisions, when you are casting votes, when you are fighting for certain policies. That's a really good, godly, right way to to do things, And and we shouldn't shy away from it as Christians. And I think there's a place for Christians specifically to serve in areas of leadership and influence and work specifically for other Christians, especially in environments where there is open hostility to the gospel. 
Christians should be about doing whatever they can in order to make the preaching of the gospel more expansive in the world. We can take advantage of those opportunities that God gives us within the parameters of the law. Thirdly, powerful people are often able to achieve much. Just last week, Pastor Sam reminded us of William, William Wilberforce, the great British politician, used all of his time in Parliament to fight for the abolition of slavery. In over 40 years of service in Parliament, Wilberforce only saw the passage of two of his pieces of legislation, even though he had submitted hundreds, all related to the elimination of slavery in one form or another. But the second of those things that passed was the most significant because it abolished the slave trade altogether in the United Kingdom. Wilberforce died three days after the passage of that law. And there's no doubt about it. We see it in our own day. We've seen it all throughout history. People who are in positions of power have the ability to get a lot of things done. And all the things they get done can have a profound impact on a lot of people and on on, on the overall course of human history, depending on what that position is. It reminds us how important it is that we be careful when we have the ability to determine who will be in power, that we take that responsibility seriously. It's also important that Christians take on positions of leadership, and and when they have those places of leadership, that they look to God's Word to find wisdom. They find direction on how to lead and make decisions, how to write policy, because it's, it's just as likely that powerful people will do much evil with their power as it is that they are capable of doing good. But powerful people are often able to achieve a great deal. Fourthly, being in a position of power doesn't automatically corrupt or make a person proud. We can all get cynical. And there's an old axiom that we see from our own experience that many ancient philosophers were readily pointing out, and that is that good, noble men and women often don't want to be in positions of power because of what it often does to the soul. There's no doubt that there is a, corrupt, a, 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 a temptation toward corruption that is greatly heightened when a person has power and influence. There can be a pull to do the wrong thing, to continue getting ahead, or to do something for selfish gain, or to keep a position. But godly people relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, can stand in the midst of these pressures, and God has put prominent people in places of power, and He has continued to preserve them. There are many examples of this throughout Scripture, and we shouldn't shy away from places of influence because of our fears. If we're gifted, if we're called to these places, we shouldn't turn them down. The fear that we have may be legitimate, But with the proper accountability, with the proper encouragement, we can do a lot of good for the kingdom of God and for our fellow believers in Christ. We don't have to be corrupted. Fifthly, people recognize and appreciate true compassion. Why is Mordecai being praised? Because in the end, him and Esther were safe. They were, they were fine right where they were. The king had given them more than they could have ever thought to ask for, and yet they didn't just settle with that. They continued to press on and to make sure they did everything they could do to preserve the Jews from Haman's terrible edict. 
And the Jews recognized that. And the Jews appreciated that. And to this very day, Mordecai is still being celebrated because of it. And we need to remember this for ourselves. True compassion can and should be shown to others. And in doing so, God is glorified because when we're compassionate toward others, when we're being selfless in the ways that we conduct ourselves to the benefit of others, we are showing something of the character and nature of God Himself. People recognize that. People appreciate that. And when we're in places, especially in places of leadership, we must be compassionate with others loving them and working for their benefit and not simply our own. Sixthly, in this first of our implications, great men and women in this world are just that, men and women. As we've seen time and time again, there are a lot of flaws with Esther and Mordecai, and some of them, I believe, are quite serious. But at the end of the day, I think it's right and good that we acknowledge that both of them were great, and what they did was great. God used them in a remarkable way, despite many of their sins, and it required great wisdom. It required great courage on their part. And so it's right that Mordecai would be celebrated. It's right that he would be a hero. He is by no means a perfect man. He wasn't even close. And if you take the time to study any of your heroes of the faith... If you read about their lives, if you read about what they did and how they did it, and if you take the time to read their journal entries or follow the course of their lives, you will find that many great men and women of the faith were deeply flawed in serious ways. Think just of the Bible. Joseph was a very proud man. David was an adulterer. Solomon lived in extreme licentiousness. Peter was brash and impulsive. And yet in the end, all of these are heroes of the faith. Think of more more recent days. Charles Wesley, he was probably an adulterer. At the very least, he carried on very inappropriate emotional relationships with women, not his wife. George Whitfield was a terrible husband, assuming his commitment was only to the gospel, leaving his wife by the side. Jonathan Edwards was by his wife's own admission. She titled the book that she wrote, being married to a difficult man. It's already been written, so no ideas. (laughs) But they're all still great men of the faith in many ways, aren't they? We've benefited tremendously from much of what they've done. They were sinful, they were flawed, but God used them in incredible ways. The best of men are men at best. And we learn that very profoundly from Mordecai and Esther. Second implication, we must have memorials of God's work in creation and redemption. Even though the book of Esther doesn't mention God even once, it is a book that reminds us over and over again of God's amazing providence. And just as the Jews seek to do with Purim, there's something good and biblical and right about establishing memorials of God's work. Whenever God does something magnificent, whenever God does something wonderful, God's people put up memorials. 
A good example of this is chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel. And you'll, you'll recognize those chapters. They describe a series of battles between the Israelites and the Philistines. And in an attempt to defeat the Philistines, the Israelites took the Ark of the Covenant into the battle as sort of this good luck charm. Unfortunately, the the Philistines captured the ark and they took it back to their pagan temple. And then God sent plagues upon the Philistines. He, He caused the idols of their god Dagon to fall over on its face. And fearing God then, the Philistines sent the ark back to the Israelites but continued to fight. And as they fought more battles... The prophet Samuel led the Israelites as their, as their last judge. So as a prophet and as a judge, Samuel offered sacrifices to God so that when the Philistines approached, the text says in 1 Samuel 7.10, God thundered with a great thunder. And in the confusion that followed, the, the Israelites soundly defeated the Philistines. And as a reminder of the great victory that God gave to Israel, Samuel Samuel took a great stone and he, he raised it as a memorial. And as he raised it, he called the name of it Ebenezer, which means one stone, a stone of help. And he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And we sing about that. When we raise our Ebenezer, we're raising the stone. It's a memorial of God's work. And whenever the Israelites looked at the stone, they were to remember how God had helped them. You know, it's unfortunate for me, I I don't really remember quite the date when I was baptized. But I think for you, for all of us, it's important as Christians, if we have a way of remembering that, that we would remember that. And every year we would celebrate that and and look back to that time when we publicly identified with Christ, receiving the means of grace, becoming covenant members of God's church. Other things that God has done are, are important to remember. In the local context, churches should remember when they were established, when they covenanted together. They should remember major milestones that have made them as a church more biblical and sound. We should remember God's major milestones throughout redemptive history. But why? Why why Purim? Why memorials? Why festivals? Why holidays? Why all of these things? Because we have a tendency to forget. It's why the Psalms say over and over, forget not. We have spiritual amnesia. We forget what God has done. I mean, goodness, how many times do we have to be reminding ourselves, hey, remember Christ died for you? Remember God gave His Son for you? We need memorials of God's work, and and one of the reasons we grow dry, one of the reasons we tend to slide backward in our sanctification is because we forget God's work and benefits. The book of Esther is a call to all of us to remember God, even when God doesn't appear on the surface to be present. Remember God. Finally, most importantly, our final implication, our hope is in one greater than any faithful leader. Remember John the Baptist's preaching? And he told the people, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
And the truth we see all throughout Scripture is, yes, the one who comes is greater than Mordecai. He's greater than David. He's greater than Solomon. He's greater than Jonah or Isaiah or Malachi or the temple or the priesthood or bulls and goats and rams. The one who was to come was better than any faithful leader that could ever be praised or thanked for what they did. Jesus Christ stands far and above anything worthy of praise. Because only Jesus Christ could do what Adam failed to do on behalf of all who would be his progeny. Only Jesus Christ, in fulfilling his covenant obligations with the Father, could live a perfect, sinless life for you and me. Only Jesus Christ could be an acceptable sacrifice to the Father to die on the cross and shed his blood and break his body receiving the penalty that was ours to receive, receiving the full weight and wrath of God that was ours to receive because of the lives that we have lived and the way that we have rejected God. Only Christ could be acceptable to be raised from the dead to conquer death and hell. That we, when we place our faith and our trust in Him and Him alone, would find life everlasting. Our hope is greater than anything or anyone that we could look to when we look to Christ. So while we should be thankful for civil leadership doing great things, doing good things in this world, while we should hold leaders accountable and do what we can to make sure policies are consistent with what God calls us to, while all these things are true, and while we can and should take opportunities to lead and to serve in places of influence and power for the good of our communities, for the good of our nation, we should always and forever remember that our hope cannot be in the government, our hope cannot be in men and women like us, because men and women and government and business business and institutions and money and stuff, all of it makes really terrible gods because all of it will fail us. The one great and forever king in whom our hope shall forever be is worthy and is perfect and will never fail us. He will never fail us. And so yes, remember the Mordecais of the world and celebrate their good works. But remember, it is Jesus alone in whom we hope, because Jesus alone can bring about a truly new day in which all of our tears and fears will be wiped away forever and ever. To Jesus and Jesus alone be all praise and glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks once again for your powerful and profound word that reminds us quite simply and yet so importantly, that it is in Jesus Christ alone in whom we trust. And it is in Jesus Christ alone that all that is worthy of honor and praise is found most ultimately. And so, Lord, while we are thankful for all of the provisions that you give us in good leaders in all the giftings that you give us as individuals to be able to lead and serve in the ways that you call us to. We recognize in the end that men and women are men and women, 
that institutions are institutions. And all these things are prone to fail us and let us down. And so may we put our hope ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, O God, for the one who might be here today who has never truly trusted on Christ, that by faith they would come to Christ without money and buy. That they would come faithfully and joyfully to receive Christ and life everlasting. We pray you would do that for your namesake, for your glory in all the world. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.